The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Dave, so Bloomberg Economics made quite a lot of waves this week. Did you read what they wrote on China? I read it, Francie, and not only did I read it, but a lot of other people read it. I think it was one of our most read stories uh, of the past week. This big report, at the eye-catching headline, was that according to our economists, China is actually never going to overtake the United States as the world's biggest economy. Yeah, and this is on the back of bad news that we've had over the last couple of weeks, a property slump, battered confidence, of course, proving hard to fix. And I think with the projections mean that growth could slow to near 1% by 2050. Yeah, and it's such an inversion of the narrative we've all got used to actually for, for decades now that kind of China has this inexorable rise to be the world's dominant economic superpower. And we also want to explore what that means for us here in the UK. I'm Francine Lacqua. And I'm David Merritt. Welcome to In The City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London. And this week, the narrative, of course, around China is changing. Is that good news for the UK? Can they actually take advantage of the bad news in China? This week, we've invited in Tom Orlick, who is the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. And I think it's fair to say, Tom, you really are our in-house, also China expert. You lived in China. I think we first met, in fact, some years ago over a dinner in Beijing um, when the world looked like quite a different place. So um, tell us about all the years you spent in China and, and your understanding of that country, that economy. So it's great to be here. Uh, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Francine, for inviting me on the show. So I lived in China from 2007 uh, when there was all of that excitement about China as a rising power. China was about to host the Olympics, kind of announcing its arrival on the world stage. Um, and there was also hope that China was on a kind of reform path, right? Uh, they probably weren't ever going to be a democracy, but they were going to have a bit more of a liberal political system. And they probably weren't ever going to satisfy Milton Friedman, but they were going to have a bit more of a market-based economic system. And when I left in 2018, the view on China had really substantially changed, right? We'd gone from hopes about growth to fears about real estate overbuilding, ghost cities, maybe a financial crisis. Uh, we'd gone from hopes that China was kind of joining the community of nations to concerns that China was rising as an authoritarian power, which was a challenge to the US-led international order. Uh, and we'd gone from hopes of sort of an extension of the Deng Xiaoping market reforms to fears that Xi Jinping placed more emphasis on the state sector of the economy. So big changes over that 11 years. What happened exactly? Because I you know, grew up with the narrative that if you're the smartest person in China, you go and work for the party. So you have great diplomats, you have great people in government, you have great policymakers, and they also frankly own what half of the commodity space in the world. The story that we tell ourselves in the West is about a kind of a break in the trend when Xi Jinping came into power. The story we tell ourselves is that Deng Xiaoping was great because he understood markets and Jiang Zemin was great because he understood markets and Hu Jintao was okay because he understood markets, also wanted to do more on kind of social policy inequality, but basically I got it. 
And Xi Jinping is not okay because Xi Jinping favors the state sector over the markets and has a sort of more authoritarian approach to policy. Now, I'm sure there's an element of truth in that narrative, but I think it's also true that some other big important things have changed, right? Under Deng and Jiang and Hu, uh, China was relatively poor, relatively weak, right? Xi Jinping took over. China was already the second biggest economy in the world. It's kind of natural, no matter who the leader is, that the second biggest economy in the world is going to start flexing its muscles, right? So we tell this story to ourselves in the West about this shift in China's leadership, basically from good to bad. But I wonder if what's actually happening is that China's just getting bigger. And when you get bigger, your attitude and your behavior changes. But did you predict, or did you anticipate, I suppose, Tom, back then when you left China, that we would get to this tipping point where this story that regardless of slowdowns, you know, worries about the property sector, authoritarianism, or any of the concerns that people had, that actually this uh, trajectory that China seemed to be on to become the dominant economic power in the world, that that wouldn't actually pan out that way. There's a famous book uh, on China called um, The Coming Collapse of China. Uh, it was written in 2001. Um, and so perhaps it's the least prescient book on China ever written because it called the collapse ahead of a 20-year boom, right? right? So in 2020, uh, I published a book called China, the bubble that never pops. Right. So, so perhaps opposite. I'll be challenging you, the, the uh, <laughs> coming collapse of uh, China book for the, for the award of least prescient book on, <laughs> on China. Perhaps we are on the cusp of the China bubble popping. There's certainly a lot of problems in the real estate sector. There's certainly a risk that could feed across to the banks. My view, though, is that even though growth prospects in China are certainly not as rosy as they were a few years ago, and you talked about how our China team have downgraded our long-term forecast, we did think in 2030 China would still be clocking 4 5% growth. Now we think it's going to be more like 3 4% growth. And that downshift has some pretty significant geoeconomic, geopolitical implications. It means, as you guys mentioned, that China may never overtake the United States to be the world's biggest economy. Um, but it still puts China on a path to continue outpacing most of the world and continue to grow its influence. Do they care if they're number one or if they're number two? As long as if they reposition this huge economy that's a little bit like shifting a massive oil tanker, maybe in a very narrow river. But if they reposition them to consume more, to go up the value chain in, in terms of things they produce, hmm. will that be seen as a success anyway? I think that's a really interesting question, Francine. Um, so um, there's going to be this really interesting dynamic in China in the next 20 years, um, 30 years, uh, where there's a really significant drop in the size of the population and the size of the working age population, right? Um, I think the working age population is going to drop by something like 50 million over the next decade or so. Um, now that's that's because close. they're not having enough babies. Yeah, it's the like kind nearly of, the population of the UK, right? Vanishing. Exactly. It's the kind of it's the aftershock of the China one of the one child policy. It's roughly equivalent to the entire population of the UK, the entire population of France. Um, so it's a lot of workers to say goodbye to, right? And that is a significant drag on growth. So if you look at the headline GDP numbers, they're definitely going to be slowing. 
because of that drag. But at the same time, China's moving up the kind of the productivity ladder, right? You've seen the stories about China's electric vehicles being the star of the German car show, right? Uh, you've seen the stories about Huawei uh, producing a smartphone with some pretty advanced semiconductor chips in it, even though they can't get those chips from the US or Taiwan anymore. Um, so if you look at the aggregate GDP numbers, it's going to be slowing. You can't escape that. The demographic drag is going to be enormous. But if you look at the individual income levels, it's going to be continuing to steadily rise because productivity is getting higher. China's getting smarter. They're, being, they're going to be able to make EVs. They're going to be able to make smartphones with more of their own internal components and so on. So to come back to your question, Francine, do they care about this? Yeah, they care about it. Like bragging rights are important. They'd love to overtake the United States. They'd love to regain their historical position as the world's biggest economy. Um, but if individual incomes are still rising, if still pe people are still getting better off, if they're still willing to make that kind of Faustian pact with the Communist Party, that the Communist Party can stay in charge because they're still delivering rising prosperity, I think that's going to be okay from Beijing's perspective. I mean, there's quite a few ifs in that there aren't there. And I think, you know, the question about Xi Jinping's omnipotence in China is coming to question the last couple of years for the first time. And I know he was he was affirmed as the most powerful leader since Chairman Mao. Um, but with economic growth slowing, you mentioned that pact between the, the Chinese Communist Party and the people of China that you deliver economic growth and wealth and you pull people out of poverty. And in return, you maybe give up some civil liberties and, and don't question those things. But that contract seems to will be called into question, won't it, if the economic growth isn't there. And therefore, she's sort of um, unshakable grip on Chinese politics might actually come a bit unstuck. I mean, how much of a risk is that? And political instability in China would be a, a huge shock, wouldn't it, to the, to the, to both to their economy, but to the whole, but to the whole world. So, I mean, the risk is there. Um, Chinese households have most of their money in real estate, right? About 70% of household wealth in China is in the home that they own. And many people own second or third homes as well. Um, and what's going on in China right now? Well, we're in a real estate crisis, right? And what that means is that the value of property has gone from decades of increasing a steady five, six, seven percent a year to falling. And in some cities, it's going to fall pretty sharply, like right? To put that into context, I mean, you know, we've got falling house prices here. And we know that's a bad impact, like five, ten percent. I mean, what's happening in China on the property values? So it's interesting. You can't actually see it in the official data, right? If you look at the official data, it looks like house prices are flat in the big cities and edging down in the small cities. Um, but if you go and speak to the property brokers, if you look at some of the private data series out there, what they're showing is that, you know what, even in some of the big cities, even in somewhere like Hangzhou, which is a massive city and which is kind of like the Silicon Valley of China, if you like, it's home to some of China's biggest tech companies, even somewhere like that, which should be booming, house prices are actually falling pretty sharply. Um, so the risk there, if you think about the UK, do you want to be a UK prime minister going into a general election with house prices falling? Probably not, right? China doesn't have elections, but it does have politics. Do you want to be Xi Jinping sitting on a collapsing real estate sector and households saying goodbye to a bunch of their wealth? Probably not. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So I was sent, it's, it's a funny thing sometimes when you get sent, I was sent this paper from the Fed uh, looking at the global spillovers of a China hard landing. And then I looked at the date, and this is really doing the rounds, and it's from 2019, and that's still kind of the template of what a slowdown in China could, could mean for the rest of the world. How much will we suffer? You know, you should look at the date, but you should also look at the author list. One of the authors on that paper is Anna Wong, now Bloomberg's chief US economist. We so. only hire the best. <laughs> Present company. She works for you, right? But yeah, yes. Right. If you want to know what a China hard landing looks like for the rest of the world, you could do worse than look at Bloomberg Economics Research. We've got quite a lot of expertise there. So right now, one of the biggest problems the world is facing is too much inflation, right? Uh, think about the challenge for Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England, the challenge for Powell at the Fed, Lagarde at the ECB. Um, so from that perspective, a China slowdown, which takes a little bit of the heat out of the global economy and has a big negative impact on commodity prices, well, maybe that would be no bad thing, right? Maybe that would give Bailey and Powell and Lagarde a bit of an assist in bringing inflation under control. Um, a China hard landing, though, if we go from 5% growth in China, which is what we expect this year, all the way down to zero, which is what you get if you have like a financial crisis, well that would start raising some broader concerns, right? Probably it would tip the UK and the US, countries where we're already expecting a mild recession into a pretty severe recession. There's a sort of Goldilocks point then when it when a slowdown in China helps fix Britain's inflation problem, which yeah. is one of the worst in the G7, or it could spill over into a really quite serious crash. So on China's economy, I often find I'm on, I'm on the optimistic side of consensus. So we've significantly lowered our long-term forecast, right? We're down at 3.5% growth in 2030. It's not hard to find people who are significantly more pessimistic than that. Some people don't think China's going to be growing at all in 2030. So why are we kind of relatively optimistic on China's short-term and its medium-term? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first is, if you think about the short-term, the biggest problem is the property sector, right? Massive overbuilding. There had to be a contraction in supply to bring it back into line with demand, right? You can't carry on building too many houses forever. Now, that, that contraction in supply has happened really quickly, which has concentrated the pain in a short period of time. But that also means it's going to be over more quickly. At some point, the correction will be over and that drag on growth will be over and China's property sector will be ready to return to not gang gangbuster growth, but at least modest growth. Um, and perhaps because the corrections happen so quickly, that point isn't so far away. And then looking longer term, I just see a country with a lot of development opportunities, right? Um, so China's GDP per capita is still a quarter of the level in the United States. China basically has copied the same economic model of, as Japan. When did Japan stop growing? It was when GDP per capita was 80% of the level in the United States. So there's a lot of what you would call low-hanging fruit, 
a lot of opportunities to grow not by being super innovative or super dynamic but just by absorbing technology from the rest of the world putting it to work in china's massive economy and benefiting from that tom we had gina raimondo in china the uk has also done overtures whilst at the same time being very careful with china because of its proximity to russia like what do they all need from each other so if you speak to people in dc they tell a story about building a high fence around a small yard right so there's a small set of strategically important technologies which are important for national security and we can't be sharing those with our geopolitical rivals right so we're going to build a high fence around those things but for everything else for everything which doesn't matter for weapons and the military and national security we want to maintain like good relations right we want to maintain good commercial relations um the chinese do not believe that story right their view uh is that washington dc is actually now attempting to contain their rise right they're attempting to stop china from growing uh to stop chinese people from being better off and i remember of course that under the cameron osborne uh era you know london was going to be this big hub for the internationalization of yuan What has happened to that process? So I think a couple of things have changed. So the first thing which has changed is China, right? So China's gone from having 10% nominal growth a year, right? So if you add up real growth and inflation, they were growing at 10% a year to having in dollar terms no growth a year. So if you look at how much the Chinese economy has expanded this year in dollar terms, it hasn't actually expanded at all. And what does that mean? It means that China has gone from having loads of money to splash around the world to having not much extra money to splash around the world and a bunch of domestic stuff they have to deal with right when you're growing 10% and youth unemployment is 5% you can go to the UK and ride in a golden carriage with the queen and promise to rebuild Britain's infrastructure when you're growing at 0% and youth unemployment is 20% maybe you want to stay in Beijing and fix some problems at home right so that's the first thing And then the second thing which has changed is obviously the geopolitics. I remember Gordon Brown sort of talking about how the UK was going to be open to Chinese investment and Chinese sovereign wealth funds could come here and as long as they kind of played by the rules it was going to be fine. Huawei was invited here to help build some of our telecom infrastructure. With the benefit of hindsight, that kind of view that we could separate the politics and the economics and the business relationship now looks a bit naive, right? D- does Governor Bailey look at china forecasts and read your bloomberg economics forecast and change what he's going to do with interest rates in this country so i hope governor bailey reads bloomberg economics actually, research actually no i can tell um, no, no actually does, you know, right? i can tell you for a fact that last time we interviewed him he said bloomberg economics was the only one that got it right on the forecast actually There two decisions ago so so that we know but i don't know whether he's looking at the china eye. forecasts <laughs> So our China forecasts are are very impactful. Uh they've been picked up in the Chinese media, they've been picked up in the US media. So that's one piece of it. Now, the second piece of it is should central banks in the UK, in the US, in Europe be paying more attention to China now than they did in the past? And I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. China's the second biggest economy in the world. It has an absolutely enormous financial sector. If China falls over, that is going to send not just ripples but shockwaves around the global economy um the, i think if you look at the bank of england research 
the sort of uh, the elasticity from China growth to UK growth is about 10% to 20%, right? So if you think the China's going to slow by one percentage point, you'd expect 0.1 to 0.2 percentage points to come off UK GDP. Now, we're expecting China to grow 5% this year, but there's a chance, not a high chance, but a non-negligible chance, they won't grow at all, right? There is a chance that the real estate crisis is going to sag into financial crisis and we go from 5% growth to zero growth. If that happens, that's going to take perhaps up to 1% of UK growth. And what that does is it turns the mild recession we're already expecting into the, in the UK into a pretty severe recession. And of course, that's the sort of thing which Bailey wants to be paying attention to. Chinese food. I can't believe you went to a restaurant without me. I mean, next it's, time, it's we should take I the really next really... one. We should go back to Beijing, right? And do... So Janet Yellen was in, uh, was in Beijing recently. And one of the main stories that came out of it was that she was fed hallucinogenic mushrooms <laughs> in, a, in a Yunnan restaurant. So... Uh, do they have to you, put a statement out? If you need an escape from That's the kind of... Your street, right? Actually, I'm more for the chicken feet. Relentless barrage of news. Uh, go to, explains uh, a lot about Travel China, to Beijing yeah, and uh, imbibe some hallucinogens. <laughs> That's amazing. Is it legal? You know, I've actually been to the restaurant uh, which Janet Yellen ate the halluc allegedly hallucinogenic mushrooms in. Um, and I've eaten the mushrooms there. Um, and... Perhaps that then explains. You wrote an economics report. Perhaps that explains my optimistic view on the Chinese economy, <laughs> but I think it's actually the case that their hallucinogenic properties have been overstated. Uh, I love that. On that note, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, that was so funny. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. It helps people find the show. Yes, it does. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacqua. And me, David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Saudi with help from Ian Green and Clitia Scala. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Tom Orlick. And of course, to explore all the amazing journalism from Bloomberg and all the podcasts, do subscribe to Bloomberg.com. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. <laughs>